This is Cinephile. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. One of the best actors alive here on this studio, Billy Bob Thornton. Great to see you, man. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Be real. Great to have here on Cinephile Ice Cube, my new best friend. Yeah, yeah, man. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? Viggo Mortensen. It's one of those movies that when it finishes, you go, now what's going to happen? Big guest, Mark Wahlberg. Ted was one of those pivotal moments in my career, like Boogie Nights, where, you know, the subject matter just seems so ridiculous and absurd. Yet, when reading the script, you know, you never want to put it down. Cinephile. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Oh, man. I just got finished saying how you have to be on point vocally as Jim Brackmeyer, and I completely punted that one. What follows is meant to function as a feature-length dressing down of a self-important general, but someone has pulled War Machine's teeth, assuming the movie ever had them to begin with. That's from Peter DeBruge, film credit for Variety, War Machine, starring Brad Pitt and Anthony Michael Hall. One of the films we'll be reviewing this time on Cinephile. Great to have you with us. As always, a terrific show coming up. Josh Dumel, one of Ben Lyons' buddies, going to be joining us as he's here in Bristol. Huge Minnesota Twins fan. Talk about baseball. Talk about his film Space Man, which I saw last year, really enjoyed. And, of course, the new Transformers film. Maybe a little Fergie question in there. Should be a ton of fun. A rare hole in my resume. We'll discuss that with Scorsese Stories, our streaming suggestions, as always, and three words, Hume Cronin, coming in out of left field. As always, iTunes, please give us your thoughts on what you think of the podcast. Give us a rating. I rate my movies at a four Maple Leafs. The ratings there at a five stars. And like I said, put a review. We read them all. We appreciate them all. Was bombarded with a lot of tweets. People mentioned the New York Times list, the top 25 films of the 21st century. In case you missed it, some notable highlights of films that I really enjoy. Number one, they had There Will Be Blood. Number three was Million Dollar Baby. Number seven was Inside Out. They had Mad Max, Fury Road at 19. To the shock of many, the 40-year-old virgin was 25. They probably felt like they had to get a big-budget comedy in there somewhere, although Judd Apatow's comedy was well-reviewed. So, uh, inspired to do so, me and Dan are going to launch right in. This is tougher than you may think. I think 25 would be outrageously long. So, in the interest of brevity, Dan and I are going to do our top 10 of the century, 16 and a half years in the books. I'm allowing three honorable mentions because I always do top 10 lists with my friends, and they cheat, but like seven honorable mentions. You can't do that. You get three honorable mentions, that's it. And afterwards, someone's going to say, well, how did you leave this out? Well, that, that's part of the game. Okay, listen, there's lots of great movies. We're not going to include them all. This is mine and Dan's list. This is our favorite movies, okay? So don't get furious at me. How can I not find a spot for Sicario? All right, it's just, just not my list. But Cinephile ESPN, as always, you can tweet us. You can find us on Instagram. I'm sure Dan will send out our list, and then we'll get a deluge of criticism. You fired up for this, Dan? Yeah, man, it's hard. I got to be honest. I think 25 would have been easier. Yes. Like, I, I got a pretty easy top 20, but getting it down to 10 was very, very difficult. It's like writing an essay. Sometimes it's easier to write the 20,000-word one than the 1,000-word one because you go, I've got so much material here that I can't include. You want to go honorable mentions first? Let's. I had 10 written down, and now I just had a check mark three. So, yeah, why don't you go first on the sure. three honorable mentions? Up. The saddest and boldest of animated films, The First Ten Minutes is Heartbreaking, a silent film that shows a couple's life story with the utmost economy of storytelling. One shot spans ten seconds and demonstrates so much. A couple decorating a nursery, the camera pans to the right, we see the woman hang her head, husband by her side in the doctor's office. Planning for the future to a miscarriage. Heartbreaking, ten seconds, without a word. Ed Asner as a curmudgeon in Disney Pixar's Up. Keep going. That was tremendous. I have no written write-ups for the honorable mentions. That's it's going to be long enough for the top tens. Mad Max Fury Road. George Miller's roaring epic. A blazing reminder of what a great action film can be. Threadbare plot. Minimal character development, but nonstop glorious car chases. The whirring of engines and motors. Villains swaying back and forth with beams. A relentless guitar player. All collide in a magnificent symphony of adrenaline and noise. I thought you'd have it in your top ten, so I'm kind of surprised. I know. It was tough not to include. I really wanted to get it in there. And this one, I, this is honestly, I can't believe I couldn't get it in there, but I couldn't do it. Sideways. 
A sophisticated comedy or a drama with humor, Alexander Payne's best film defies description, but its peerless insights into men and women of a certain age is unmistakable. Paul Giamatti was robbed of an Oscar nomination for his best performance as the deeply empathetic Miles, a wannabe writer battling depression, alcoholism, and the pain of a failed relationship. Watch the scene where Miles gets told by his ex that she's pregnant with her new husband, and you can see a man getting a sledgehammer taken right to his heart. Prior to that, though, are some huge laughs thanks to his buddy Thomas Hayden Church, an unrepentant, soon-to-be-married man who attends to bed as many conquests as possible before he walks down the aisle. As usual with Payne's films, the movie ends perfectly. Well done. And uh, as the ever man on this podcast, yeah. I will just be brief in my remarks and the honorable mentions. <laughs> I'm just going to go. They didn't make the top ten. I'm sorry. Yell at me. I know. People the, are going to be furious. The Dark Knight I know. didn't make the top ten. <laughs> oh. The Departed, sorry, <laughs> didn't make the top ten. And I will also highlight Spotlight. Oh. Didn't make the top ten, even though it won Best Picture, and I'm a big journalism guy. Yeah. And quickly, before we get into the top ten, shout out to our guy, Mike Salk, who hosts the radio show in Seattle. Yeah. He tweeted his top three that he would have in, 25th Hour, City of God, Hell or High Water. Didn't make the top ten. I've seen two of the three and loved them. <laughs> Love Salky, too. Had to get that out there. Love Salky. He was the first guy I worked with all the time on radio. It was me, him, and Dan on the Doug Gottlieb Show. Mike is the best. It was Really responsible for my rise here at ESPN. So love Salk and love his list, especially City of God. What a great Brazilian crime film. Shout out to Salk for putting it out there. And obviously, like Dan said, I love Hell or High Water, too, but not my list either. All right, number 10. Apologies to the dizzying comic opera that is The Wolf of Wall Street, the charming and sentimental Hugo, the highly entertaining gangster film The Departed, but my lone Scorsese film is his 25 years in the making passion project, Gangs of New York. Anchored by Daniel Day-Lewis's rip-roaring Bill the Butcher, a role ripe for a De Niro. Gangs of New York emerges triumphant despite its flaws, being overlong and a less-than-compelling Cameron Diaz-Leo DiCaprio romance. What's indelible, though, is Scorsese's epic vision. The gorgeous sets on Federico Fellini's Cinecitta Studios from Dante Ferretti. The razor-sharp editing of Thelma Schoonmaker. The authentic dialogue from Manchester by the Sea's Kenneth Lonergan, Schindler's List Steve Zalian, and Silence's Jay Cox. What part of that excrementitious aisle did your forebearers spawn? You got the sand to prove it, Jenny? Howard Shore's period music combining drums and flutes and, of course, the trademark Scorsese energy through tracking shots. One sequence in particular you have to see. You see people arriving in America. The crane moves up, and it goes to coffins. It's amazing showing this is what these people are doing going to war. Marty does it without any music. It's amazing. Two sequences, though, even more than that are amazing. When the butcher confronts Amsterdam over his true intentions and the draft riot sequence. He bites off a lot in this, but Marty's showing you American history and how it was born on the streets. It's also a timely statement on immigration and how America is repeating its past. And there's Daniel Day-Lewis towering above them all, the ultimate gangster in a Scorsese film. Amsterdam, I'm New York. Incredible. I am blown away already. One, that that is going to be your only Scorsese film included, and two, that it's not silence. I was bracing myself for silence to be number one, and I probably wasn't even going to post it. So, I put, I didn't want to wow. Put, right, it would have been very easy to just put a bunch of Marty movies. I thought you'd no. have like six sprinkled in there. <laughs> And uh, I got to say, I'm very surprised. So you want to go every other? You want me to do 10 yeah, now? Yeah, you got 10. Okay. I, I have a feeling you're going to hate my list, but I don't care. Listen, I, it's my list. Every man, okay? Yeah. Dan is the every man Okay, of the number 10, up in the air. <laughs> George like Clooney it. plays a cocksure businessman who travels the country firing people for companies that don't have the spine to do it themselves. Kind of tapped into the zeitgeist of America when it came out. A lot of things were happening in America where people were getting fired. No one's really confident in their job status. He is seemingly content and well on his way to 10 million frequent flyer miles. But as we get introduced to Vera Farmiga and the incredible Anna Kendrick, we soon learn that he's actually utterly alone and averse to change. Excellent. I love Up in the Air, and you mentioned the fact it was very timely. The sequence where they show people actually losing their jobs, real people losing their jobs, the fact that Reitman intercut that along with the fiction, very good. And two guys with pretty good vocabularies. No one's going to top cocksure. That's my guess. Number nine, Darren Aronofsky gave Mickey Rourke the role of a lifetime and an unlikely comeback in The Wrestler, the best sports film of the decade. Unflinching in its depiction of a man whose glories lie well behind in the rearview mirror, it's an authentic and unsparing character study which allows Rourke to show the beauty behind the beast. The penultimate scene where Marissa Tomei's stripper begs him not to go in the ring. I'm here, she says. I'm really here. Yet he refuses her advances. A man essentially committing suicide, 
but doing so with the roar of the crowd in his ears. A beautiful Springsteen title track as well. Number nine, The Wrestler. Fantastic film. I have an Aronofsky film coming up later on. Nice. Just quick tease for you. Uh, number nine for me, The Prestige. <laughs> You'd probably hate it. I typically like my movies set in the present day, but I make exceptions. And this high-stakes drama about dueling magicians played by Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale set in Victorian London is one of them. The cast also includes Michael Caine. Had to get him in there somewhere yes. in the top ten. Uh, Scarlett Johansson and David Bowie. Wow. Who plays Nicholas Tesla. Do you remember this? I don't remember. I liked it. I saw wow. it once. I don't okay. remember much of it. Yeah. And as you might expect, with a movie about magicians, there's a twist. Yeah, I liked it. Uh, I don't remember a ton about it. Surprisingly, you put it at number nine. It It's like, you know, 80%-ish on Rotten Tomatoes. You know, okay. critics didn't love it, but, you know. Now, listen, it's your list. You do whatever you want, buddy. From Frank Sinatra and The Man with the Golden Arm to Matt Dillon and Drugstore Cowboy to Ewan McGregor and Train Spotting, Hollywood has never shot away from stories of drug addiction, but never done so with the harrowing urgency that Darren Aronofsky does in my number eight film, Requiem for a Dream. The familiar montage when his characters get high is eye-opening, and the score is one of the best I've ever heard. But it's the performances that will never leave you. None better than Ellen Burstyn's marvelous transformation from lonely widow to strung-out junkie. I'm alone. I'm alone. Now when the sun comes, I smile. That scene where she confesses to Jared Leto that she's like addicted to weight loss pills. Maddie Liebetek, the cinematographer, literally had tears in his eyes. Aronofsky said it was unreal how great that scene was. Number eight, Requiem for a Dream. I got to say, I recently saw the movie and I was like left like, why do people like this movie so much? I felt like I should be on drugs watching that film. Like I didn't get it. I don't know. I love Jennifer Connelly, but there's some gruesome scenes in that one my goodness dark and um, disturbing yeah Whew. um all right this next one is very brief and i'll let you take over because you'll have much more to say on it i imagine number eight slumdog millionaire nice. an up an uplifting story that's a cross between the kite runner one of my favorite books i've ever read nice and the movie mike salk shouted out city of god and i'll let you take it away from there slumdog millionaire uh wonderful storytelling love danny boyle the director and it's one of those underdog stories that was like an underdog hit as well. Like nobody really talked about the film. It was a huge hit at the Toronto Film Festival. Ends up winning Best Picture. Wonderful storytelling. I agree. That's like a charming, heartwarming story that you can actually get behind. However, it's not on my list. Number seven. The Dark Knight is the best comic book film of the century, but didn't make the cut. Christopher Nolan's best film is Memento, a daring original, highly conceptual thriller that unfolds backwards. Nolan, with a script written with his brother as well, plays with conventional narrative with playfulness. One chase sequence, Guy Pierce's hero says, are these guys chasing me or am I chasing them? And not only is Pierce a standout, but also Carrie Ann Moss from The Matrix and Joe Pantoliano. Lenny! Memento also ends up being a lesson for how we use memory and suppress events too painful to process memento marked christopher nolan's arrival as a filmmaker not to be trifled with you're gonna laugh but i recently saw the movie because i had forgotten about it (laughs) (laughs) i mean it is very good i love christopher nolan more on him as we continue Mm -hmm. number seven for me when you do a top 10 you almost feel like you got to have one kind of genre of something in there like you you know i try to get a kids movie in right film yeah same so for me, I'm like, I got to get a comedy in there. Yeah. So number seven for me is Wedding Crashers. It is the most quotable movie of my generation, and it's not just a comedy. There's a genuine love story in there, and it gets me every time. This probably Stanzik's most controversial pick so far. But I told you, you're going to hate the list. But I don't the care. audiences are going to love it. They're going to go, yeah, Wedding Crashers. That, that's got to be in there. I did want to have like a big budget comedy in there. The one that I most wrestled with was not Wedding Crashers. I really wanted to find a spot for The Hangover, but I could not quite do it. But that would be mine. As far as a big-budget comedy that people love and, and, as you mentioned, highly quotable, The Hangover would have been mine. If there was 15 movies or 20 movies, it would have been in there. However, my big comedy is this one. Wes Anderson's film, The Royal Tenenbaums, shows him operating the peak of his powers. Idiosyncratic characters, witty repartee, intricate and detailed production design, pitch-perfect soundtrack, and amidst the genuine humor, sincere empathy for his characters. Ostensibly a story about an old rascal played with glee by Gene Hackman, The Royal Tenenbaums is about the fragility of family, the inevitability of disappointment, and a truly unexpected father and son story. Some of the biggest laughs I've had in the theater 
is after when Hackman sees the play being mounted by Gwyneth Paltrow, where one of the characters says, this is Margot, my adopted daughter, and nobody in the audience is laughing except for Hackman because that's the way he would introduce his daughter. There's also an incredible tennis scene involving Luke Wilson, the best tennis scene since Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train. And like I said, there's great humor. Owen Wilson, the fact he's on uh, methamphetamines, and it's very funny, the, the, the relationship with Hackman and Danny Glover, the way he's trying to bust his chops. And yet, as I mentioned, unexpected father and son story. Ben Stiller has all this rage towards his dad. And yet, at the end, you cannot get but choked up when he says to his dad, it's been a tough year, Dad. And he goes, I know, Chazzy. And then Chaz is the only one who's actually in the ambulance taking his dad to the hospital. I don't know how Wes does it, but the movie blows me away. Number six, The Royal Tenenbaums. Not my favorite Wes Anderson film. Originally, it was the similar case with Requiem for a Dream. I didn't get it. But yeah. as I've watched more and more of his films, I've liked them more and more. Like, I used to joke about, oh, the Grand Budapest Hotel. I'm not going to see that trash. I kind of laugh now. Yeah. My favorite one is they're at the camp. What is it? Moonrise Kingdom? Yeah, Moonrise Kingdom. That's my like favorite Wes Anderson film. But Very funny. It doesn't make the list. Number six for me, I just got a comedy in there at number seven. Number yeah. six is the kids' movie, and you know the one I'm going to pick. <laughs> I'll let you guess. You're going to get it wrong now, but you should know because I've mentioned it many times. Oh, uh, hang on. I don't know what it You're is. not going to know. Toy Story 3. No, that's right. Toy Story. He loved Toy not Story Not ashamed 3. to admit, but I teared up when I first watched this one back in 2010. And let me read quickly for you a portion of Rafer Guzman's review <laughs> yes. in Newsday. Yes. Rafer no one Guzman. said Toy Story 3 would be the end of the beloved Disney Pixar franchise about a group of toys with lives of their own. But a sense of closure gives the latest movie a surprising power and poignancy. It's sadder and scarier than its predecessors, but it also may be the most important chapter in the tale. It opens by acknowledging the inevitable. Andy, the human owner of our toy heroes for the past 15 years, is growing up. The zippy humor, like a metrosexual Ken doll voiced by Michael Keaton, <laughs> takes a backseat to moments of almost overwhelming emotion, abandonment, abuse, brushes with death. The payoff comes with the film's bittersweet denouement. Did I say that right? Probably not. The, the, the closing action yeah, denouement. for uh, all you people in literature class. I like it's it. as beautifully written and illustrated as any children's book. As with many Pixar films, Toy Story 3 may resonate the strongest with those who left childhood long ago. Easily your best selection. And I'm upset that I did not find a spot for it. Terrific review that it perfectly captures why it's a great film. You're right about the poignancy, the scene where he's going to give away his toys. Owen Gleiberman wrote about it, too, uh, just along with Way for Guzman. He loved it. He may have had it as his best picture. He's, it's one of the great movies he's ever seen. Um, yeah, bang on everything. It's, it's really funny, and it's really sweet. Zippy humor. Well done. Number five, Paul Thomas Anderson's best film is a strangely hypnotic tale. Oil, greed, family, and the pursuit of the American dream. Daniel Day-Lewis plays a hugely ambitious misanthrope. I look at people, and I see nothing worth liking who will stop at nothing to achieve personal fortune, even adopting a boy whose father is killed while excavating for oil. The relationship with my son and my partner, H.W., is complex, but the true antagonist is Paul Dano's preacher, whose feverish passion threatens Daniel Plainview. I am the third revelation! The first scene, ten minutes of a man digging for oil, perfectly establishes mood and tone, and the scene where they strike oil will have you awestruck between Robert Ellswit's Oscar-winning stunning cinematography and the peculiar score. The ending goes way, way over the top because it works because it's so thrilling prior to that. I drink your milkshake. Number five, there will be blood. You got two Daniel Day-Lewis films on there at 10 and 5, just for the record. I know Lincoln's not coming up. Yeah, but Lincoln is that, not that is too. Uh, number five for me, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Jim Carrey, in a rare dramatic role, hires a strange company to destroy the memories of his ex-girlfriend, played by Kate Winslet. But he quickly learns that as much as we'd like to forget about certain events in our lives, they are oftentimes key parts to the fabric that shapes us. Awesome movie. Gondry, great directing. Script by Kaufman. Carrie's best movie. Awesome. Best dramatic film, I should say. Number four, Capturing the Freedmans, an unforgettable documentary about one family accused of sexually abusing young boys in a computer class. Andrew Jarecki's Long Island Tale with its piercing, illuminating film carefully peers away layers of guilt and innocence, skillfully introducing backstory and character anecdotes that sway the audience. In which direction do you go, guilty or innocent, you decide. Had to get a documentary in there. Capturing the Freedmans, phenomenal film. 
You would. Documentary. Get out of here. You know how many documentaries you've uh, done? Actually, I considered Man on Man Wire. Man on Wire, yes. It would, it's in the top 20 for me, but it didn't yes. make the top 13, I guess. Also in, in my top we're doing. 20. Love that. Love it. Yeah. Second favorite documentary of the decade. Yeah. Uh, number four for me. Here's Aronofsky. Yeah. Black Swan. Yes. Many people found this film to be disturbing, confusing, frantic, and a bit disorienting, but I think that was the point. <laughs> Director Darren Aronofsky cleverly made the audience experience what the main character was going through. Plus, there's a Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis sex scene, so what's not to like? I kept wondering how is this going to end because, like, he nails dread and paranoia, and I'm like, all right, what's going to be the twist? And then when it comes, maybe in another film it would have felt false, but here it felt perfect. I'm like, yep. My brother Pat, who you don't know, yeah. had a three-word review, and it was, it's effed up. That was it. <laughs> it is... I mean, that's a movie. It's talking about mood and tone and putting you in, in that universe. I thought it was true to that world, not knowing anything about ballet, but just the pressure and the urgency of ballet. Agreed. Black Swan was awesome. Number three, Oscar Farhadi, the Iranian master, one of the best filmmakers alive. A separation. An Oscar winner for best foreign film is potentially a dramatic film about a couple trying to sort through marital discord, but it unfolds with the gripping urgency of a suspenseful thriller. There's no black and white in Farhadi's film, just loads of shades of gray. Shout out to the salesman, which is also wonderful, but a separation blew me away. It was Roger Ebert's best picture of the year. It's number three of my best films of the decade, a separation. Loved it. In the top 20, couldn't make the top 10. Like, incredible film. You hear that, you're like a rounding in film. Why am I going to watch that? Right. Worth it. If you can find it, if it's streaming somewhere, go watch it. Incredible. Love that you've seen it. Uh, yeah, you were very su pleasantly surprised when I told you I'd seen it. Number three for me, Mystic River, yes. a layered, oftentimes chilling detective drama directed by Clint Eastwood about the murder of a young woman and the personal ties between the father, detective, and a suspect. Sean Penn, Tim Robbins, and Marcia Gay Harden deliver inspired performances. Acting is off the charts. Every single one of those performances, Penn, is that my daughter in there? Robbins won an Oscar. He's so haunted. And I love Bacon. Nobody ever mentions Bacon. Straight arrow cop, but he's dealing with a relationship with his wife. I mean, he's of the three main characters. Right. He gives the, the lesser performance. Correct. But, I mean, they were all fantastic. Marsha Gay, fantastic. And then Laura Linney comes out of nowhere. Lady Macbeth in the final scene. You go, cold-hearted, <laughs> you know what. Wow. Number two. Benjamin Esposito is the character who draws on his own past for his first novel. In 1974, his court was assigned an investigation into the rape and murder of a beautiful young woman. My number two best film of the decade, of the century, excuse me, The Secret in Their Eyes. Rich with symbolism, Juan Jose Campanella's Argentinian film has assured direction, which means this murder mystery lives up to its Oscar. Ricardo Duran and Soledad Villamal give us one of the best love stories I've ever seen interwoven amidst the crime story. Echoes of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo and its sublime beauty. The ending is absolute perfection. This is not the remake. For anybody looking it up, it's not the Chiwetelagia for Julia Roberts' mess that was made. The Secret in Their Eyes, 2010, Argentinian film. Blew me away. Number two. Haven't seen it, obviously. <laughs> uh, number two for me here. You probably thought I was going to put this number one because yeah. if I've said it once, Inception. I have said it 1,000 times. Inception. Gone, baby, gone. Oh, no, Number two. You could teach an entire college ethics course based solely on this film. I have literally had yelling, screaming arguments with some of my closest friends about the decision one of the main characters makes. You could argue that the movie is essentially a nature versus nurture situation in which is the best for children. I love the opening voiceover, which I will now read to you. It features Casey Affleck, who... Your guy. Oh, my goodness. Directed by Ben Affleck. Mm -hmm. I believe his directorial debut. Yes. I could have that incorrect. No, but right. it, it opens with this voiceover. I always believed it was the things you don't choose that makes you who you are. Your city, your neighborhood, your family. People here take pride in these things, like it was something they'd accomplished. The bodies around their souls, the cities wrapped around those... I lived on this block my whole life. Most of these people have. When your job is to find people who are missing, it helps to know where they started. I find the people who started in the cracks and then fell through. This city can be hard. When I was young, I asked my priest how you could get to heaven and still protect yourself from all the evil in the world. He told me what God said to his children. You are sheep among wolves. Be wise as serpents, yet innocent as doves. Wow. The hell of an open. Unbelievable. I tell you, if I've been carrying the torch for silence, you have definitely 
Gosh, me to the four years. I saw it in the theaters. Yeah. Great story behind that. I'll tell you off the air. I've got to go watch Gone Baby Gone again because I, I like it. I don't remember much about it. Good twist, well acted, all the rest of it. But but number two of the century is unbelievable. And the number one best film of the century. Who could have ever predicted Clint Eastwood, the American master's greatest film, would be a Douglas Sirk style melodrama? The movie lifts your heart and then pulls a chair up from under you and breaks it. Million Dollar Baby. Clint's acting is as masterful as his direction. He's the gruff, crusty boxing gym owner who hides his tenderness towards Maggie. Hillary Swank's young boxer, dirt poor but armed with an indefatigable work ethic and weighed down by a monstrous mother, Margot Martindale, villainy personified. Morgan Freeman's rich narration and chemistry with Clint is magnificent, and they take an unpredictable script adaptation from Canadian Paul Haggis and take all those well-worn boxing cliches and somehow incredibly make them feel totally fresh. Clint's score is also sparse and haunting, one of the best movie endings ever. Saw it in the theater, knew very little about it, seen one trailer, hadn't read any reviews, Halfway through, I saw it alone. I turned to a complete stranger, and I said, this is some great movie, huh? And I tell you, after the last credits, people did not move. It was incredible. A rare time, I was happy a Scorsese movie didn't win. As much as I like The Aviator, I said, Million Dollar Baby's got to win Best Picture. It did win Best Picture. Would have liked to see Marty won Best Director, but when Clint won, I was still happy for him because I think it's an unbelievable film. The lighting is amazing. Tom Stern cinematography. Million Dollar Baby, number one. Fantastic movie. I don't know how you haven't mentioned Morgan Freeman yet. I did. Oh, you did? Okay, maybe I just missed it. He Morgan won Best Freeman's Supporting, movie. correct? Yes, he did. Okay. Yeah. Also, his best. Well worth it. Incredible. Right. Hillary Swank, she awesome. also won? Yes. Two-time Best Two-time Academy Award winner. Pretty good. Boys Don't Cry and Million Dollar Baby. Pretty good. Uh, and number one for me, you kind of ruined the surprise earlier, it is Inception. Yeah, no brainer. In my opinion, this is Christopher Nolan's magnum opus, and he has made plenty of notable films, including The Dark Knight, Interstellar, Memento, etc., Leonardo DiCaprio headlines a star-studded cast, which also includes the sultry Marion Cotillard in this film about ideas, dreams, belief, and defining your own truth. The ambiguous ending will have you thinking about the film for days. Inception, number one. You and Saruti carry the torch of this movie. Great movie. I love the ending. I mean, speaking of great, I think there's a really common theme with our top ten, great endings. Like, a lot of movies sometimes will lead you to that, and you go, eh, a bit of a letdown, but phenomenal ending. No films in common. I got to say, I'm a little surprised. Yeah, shocked but, you didn't have one. But yeah. I'll say this, with all honesty, with a couple of exceptions, I could take your list and I would feel pretty confident validating all of it. I love Mystic River. I love Black Swan. I love Toy Story 3. I love Slumdog Millionaire. Wedding Crashes, I'd have a tough time yeah, defending yeah. my top ten. But listen, I got a comedy in there. I'm impressed. I've seen eight of the ten you have you picked. So. Yeah, I was like, the, if he's seen The Secret in Their Eyes, I'll be blown away. But a separate, Capturing the Freebans you haven't seen, documentary. Right. I'll lend you that one. I think you'll like that one. But uh, let us know. Other ones are now. Okay, go ahead. Now read the ones. Everyone's going to say, how did you not have Spotlight? How did you not have? I did mention Spotlight yeah. earlier, but Almost Famous, A yes. Separation we mentioned, The Dark Knight I mentioned, The Departed. The Fighter was my favorite sports mm-hmm. movie of the year. Christian right. Bale or of the year, of the century. Right. Um, Juno, I loved. Oh, yeah. Loved it. Jordan Man on Wire we mentioned. Manchester by the Sea. And I also had Walk the Line. Yes. Again, I have no quibbles. With that. Walk the Line, one of the best biopics. Amazing performances, Reith and Joaquin. The fact, everyone always mentions Jamie Foxx, Ray Charles, but he didn't sing the music. He was lip-syncing. Joaquin Phoenix actually did Johnny Cash's voice in those songs. He should get extra credit for that. Man on Wire is an awesome documentary. If you haven't seen it, Dan's right. That was right there on my list. I want to get them there. I really wanted to get the Dark Knight in because I was like, you need a big budget comic book movie. There's been so many comic book movies the last 16 and a half years, so that would be the one in there. Um, but yeah, pretty good list. Go ahead, tweet us, Cinephile ESPN. Also run Instagram. Let us know where we aired I'm sure people are going to be all fired up about this. But this was a fun list to do, wasn't it? Yeah, for sure. And, and I think the, the most common ones tweeted in were There Will Be Blood and Everyone Is Going to Be Mad at Us Because We didn't Have Not Mentioned It Yet, No Country for Old Men. Those are probably the two most tweeted in answers. Got to be honest. I like it, but there's Coen Brothers movies I like a lot more. And Agreed. It, and it wasn't even on my top. My initial, as you said, your initial top 20, top 25, I did not have No Country for Old Men. Didn't make it. And, and I've said it before. My big criticism with the film is the first two-thirds of it, we have this villain chasing Josh Brolin. Right. Eventually, he murders him, and we don't get to see it. Right. I, I couldn't get past it. Even Spoilers, I, sorry. No, but even admirers of the film say, what's up with the final 10 minutes? Like, it just like once Brolin's dead in the hotel, I go, what's, what's going on here? Like, it just kind of keeps going. I, I just don't, I'd love to ask the Cobras, as brilliant as they are, and you think they're overrated, which my brother likes that you also don't care for their work. But yeah, if they, you know. 
If they're ever here, that's what I'd say. I'm like, why, did, why didn't you just, why, A, why didn't you show the murder? And B, why does the movie keep going? What does Tommy Lee Jones' monologue at the end mean? I don't get it. If we were doing a best villains of the century, oh. then Javier Bardem's yeah. character is in there, of course. But right. films altogether didn't make the cut. Just for the hairstyle alone. All right, Josh Demel is coming up momentarily. I'll make this relatively quick. War Machine, the only new film that I've seen. It's currently on Netflix, and it is atrocious. It is meant to be a satire, but there is a complete absence of humor in this film. To be perfectly honest, if I did not have a podcast called Cinephile, I would have turned this off after 30 minutes. It somehow trudged through. My rules from watching films, I can't just start playing with the phone because that's a cheat. So I had to suffer through this like a character from you know, Clockwork Orange with my eyeballs open as I tried to stomach this movie. We were trying to get Anthony Michael Hall on the podcast, so I was going to refrain from giving a review until we were sure if we were going to get him or not. Since it looks like we're not going to get him, I can go ahead and torch the film. Uh, he and Brad Pitt are in this allegedly satirical comedy that focused on the American military involvement in Afghanistan. It's based on the book The Operator, the wild and terrifying inside story of America's war in Afghanistan by Michael Hastings, directed by David Michaud. It's supposed to be viewed from the perspective of the men leading the military campaign. But like I said, I never laughed, so I don't know where the satire was. This is like the men who stare at goats. Speaking of movies that had high expectations, ended up being very disappointing. Uh, among those in the wreckage, Pitt, Tilda Swinton, Ben Kingsley's in the movie, Topher Grace. So they've got a lot of good actors here, but the story just goes nowhere. It's aimless, and it's devoid of humor, and I regret having seen it. And I like Brad Pitt, but it's... I wouldn't say it's a bad performance necessarily, but it's a caricatured performance, and it also gets annoying the way his character and his voice is. So War Machine is one to skip. It's currently available on Netflix. I'm giving it one Maple Leaf. That's how bad this movie is. <laughs> I don't often delve into TV, but as I mentioned billions before, a couple of TV shows wrapping up. Better Call Saul just wrapped its third season. Nothing will ever touch Breaking Bad, a show that's a favorite not only of mine and Dan's, but so many of us listening, I'm sure. The problem with Better Call Saul is... Like, you can never top Walter White. Like, so your main character was phenomenal as a supporting character. Bob Odenkirk, his work as Saul Goodman. But to make the entire show about him, like, there's a reason a character is a supporting character. Like, he's not meant to carry the entire show. They carry the entire movie. And sometimes it works. I know spinoffs have worked in the past. Frasier, of course, probably the best ever example of that, uh, from Cheers to Frasier, in terms of great TV show spinoffs. But there's a lot of Joey's. Speaking of friends that have not worked out. And listen, Better Call Saul is a good show. It's got excellent production value. It's still Vince Gilligan involved in it. And I love the relationship with Odenkirk and his brother, played by Michael McKean, which my brother tells me is actually Vince Gilligan had said in an interview is based on the documentary Crumb, which is one of my favorite documentaries. What a warped movie that is about uh, family dysfunction. But it also also is all about artistry and the importance of art. Uh, but with Better Call Saul, like I said, I just don't think the lead character should be able to hold a show. I mean, rather than being Breaking Bad, which is... A gangster crime story. This is a lawyer show. Like I, it's taken me this long to realize. I'm like, no, this has more in common with these, one of these lawyer procedural type shows than it would be with a gangster show. And, and they give you a little bit of Giancarlo Esposito for all the Breaking Bad fans. They give you a little bit of the other characters. Jonathan Banks is phenomenal. The best show, a better call, best episode, I should say, Better Call Saul, was in season one. And it was totally about Jonathan Banks's character. Of course, he was Mike Ehrman Trout from Breaking Bad. And it deals with his backstory, being a Philadelphia cop, relationship with his son. That episode is one of the best episodes I've ever seen of dramatic television. But overall, I enjoy Better Call Saul for what it is while recognizing it will never be Breaking Bad. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. His three seasons are now in the books. And also Fargo, season three wrapping up. The first season felt like a revolution because you hadn't seen Billy Bob Thornton give such a good performance in over a decade playing one of the great villains, Lorne Malvo. Um, loved how atmospheric it was and just how risky it was like how do you take one of the most beloved movies of the 90s critically acclaimed loved by audiences cone brothers who sometimes can be esoteric this was a film that really had a wide following which was big for them and then so we're going to make a tv show about this You're like mm, how does marge gunderson going to play all of a sudden on tv but incredibly for noah holly it has worked i think the seasons have gotten less strong over the years the first season was the best second season was good could have used some more ted danson but um Kirsten Dunst was excellent as the heroine. This one features Ewan McGregor playing two roles, twin brothers. So good acting by him. Um, but again, at this point, it kind of feels like the story's become too familiar in terms of the, the quirky accents and 
you know, excessive violence and murder and such, but still remains watchable. So I give Fargo season three, three Maple Leafs as well. Michael Stuhlberg, also notable for his supporting work. And by the way, if you go to Gold Derby, check out my experts picks. You'll see all my predictions for the upcoming Emmy Awards. I've got Ewan McGregor getting nominated in a loaded category for Best Actor. He's going to be up against Riz Ahmed for The Night Of, Robert De Niro for The Wizard of Lies, and also John Turturro for The Night Of. And I think Jeffrey Rush is going to sneak in there for Genius, playing Albert Einstein, which if I had more time, I'd love to see that. Ron Howard directed that story as well. And lastly, I just wanted to mention a comedy special. I wish I watched uh, more comedies. I wish I watched more stand-up. But thankfully, I pulled aside an hour to watch Hassan Minhaj's Homecoming. I heard him speak on the Dan Lebitard show. Uh, he is the comic who was at the White House Correspondents' Dinner and was hysterical. Of course, uh, President Trump was not there, but Hassan Minhaj owned it. And I offer this uh, qualifier. I don't know if people will find it as funny if you don't share my same ethnicity and heritage. I think it is a great movie for brown people because all of his jokes are about growing up brown and immigrant family and uh, the relationship with his dad and all that stuff. I don't know if my buddy Dan Stanzik sits down and goes, all right, yeah, it's funny or it's funnier if you belong to that group of people and then you can relate to a little bit more. So I offer that caveat. But anybody I talk to who's of Pakistani or Indian descent is like, oh, my God, have you seen Homecoming? It's unbelievable. How about this scene? How about that scene, et cetera? So check out Hassan Minhaj's Homecoming on Netflix. I found it really funny. It's interesting, too. I was talking with a comedian friend of mine, and he said that made this point. He goes, in the past, comedians would always just – you know, it was punchline one-liner, like Jay Leno, love him or hate him, was that quintessential comic. It was just always stories ripped from the headlines. Because now a lot of comedians, there's no, it's no punchline, it's no set-up punchline, it's just stories. And Minhaj definitely does that. This is just storytelling. It's like five minutes of stories, and there's humor within that, but oftentimes they just kind of take you down this journey. And it's just a different style of comedy, but I did enjoy it, and I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs, and we'd love to try to get him on the podcast at some point, so we'll see about that. You're listening to Cinephile, the Adnan Burke Movie Podcast. It's great to have Josh Demel here with us in studio. Your second time here at ESPN, but you can verify this is like a college campus for those who haven't been before. This place is unbelievable. I mean, you have everything here. You have you have basketball courts, you have cafeterias, you've got, you know, and it, it, probably the nicest campus in the United States. <laughs> the only thing is you don't have any classes. You've got to be here professional. Which is hard. For right. Me. But this allows us to act in a sophomoric manner. Yeah. I'm not thinking college yeah. campus. Yeah, we sorry. didn't know yeah. a teacher. Even though we're actually it's like a campus. <laughs> um, I want to get to Space Man in just a second. And the fact that you're a legit sports fan. Sometimes we have oh, yeah. people come here and they go, yeah, no, sure. Twins. Uh, yeah. Kirby Puckett back in the day. But I know yeah. you're a legit fan. But let's talk about Transformers. The okay. latest one. You're back in that universe again. Bigger, better, spectacle. Michael Bay. Yeah. Hype it up for me. It is, it is a sight to behold. It really is. I was... I hadn't seen it until about a week after doing a lot of press in China, and then I didn't see it until we got to London. Mm-hmm. And I was a little worried because I remember while we were shooting it, it was like, I remember asking Mark Wahlberg, like, dude, are we, where are we right now? What are we shooting? Are we 15,000 feet above sea level? Or are we 2,000 feet underwater? I don't, he's like, I don't know, man. Yeah. We were 84 days in. You should know this. In other words, he had no idea either. Right. But the movie really works. It really does. It's uh, it's it's amazing what Michael Bay, you know, what he has in his head because he keeps it all there and doesn't really tell anybody. Right. And the movie is really a lot of fun. It gets into the history of Transformers. It gets into how long they've been around and how much they've affected human history. And uh, it, it just makes it's just a it's just a ride. It really is. I wonder how the acting with CGI. Like, give me an example. Like, like you're looking at a tree and it's supposed to be this gigantic Transformer and that's going to make Stonehenge. How yeah, how do you do that? Yeah, you well, you you well. Actually, we built our own Stonehenge <laughs> six miles from Stonehenge, which is only Michael Bay would do that. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, this is my fourth time doing it, so it's not as big of a challenge. And there's so many explosions and gunfire and just stuff going on around you that it really feels like you're in the middle of a battle scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you have to you have to pretend that 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 tennis ball or that that giant pole with a mask of Megatron, whoever is is him, right? But you know, like there's there's actually a little commercial right now that they made where I'm, which sort of touches on that. Where Hound, who's who's voiced by, uh, um, oh god, no, I can't remember his name. Uh, it'll come to me anyway. He's he's doing a scene, and I'm supposed to be playing opposite of him. Mm-hmm. And it's a, and there's a guy holding up a tennis ball, mm-hmm. and he's and he's like, how am I supposed to act with the tennis ball? And, and, and so I, I come running. I was like, no, 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 here, hound, I'm here, I'm here. Yeah. And he turns around and he goes, well, I'd rather act with the tennis ball. 
<laughs> so the Transformers would rather act with the ball than with me, which is I'm not sure how I how I take that. Anthony Hopkins, uh, Alec Baldwin has a great impression of him, and he says so. He goes, you know, he's a Shakespearean actor and his Welsh legend. He goes, yeah. and if you ask him, he says, oh, I, I hate the theater. I just want to do these movies like Michael oh. Bay movies, make oh, a lot yeah. of money, sit with the sunshine. What, did you have many, many scenes with Anthony? In the I had no scenes with Anthony in this movie. We were sort of on different yeah. uh, parallels in this movie, but – he, we, I did meet him at Stonehenge. I met him before. I'd actually done a movie. Yeah, I did a movie with him right. that uh, nobody's seen. No, but, I've seen it. I'm going to ask yeah. you about it. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> Great. Uh, but he's, you know, he truly is one of those. He's just, you'd think he's this, this, this uh, refined. Yeah. Uh, because he, he is yeah. that. He's Sir Anthony Hopkins, and he's one of the greatest ever to live. Right. But he just, you know, he's just a fun guy, really loving guy, really generous and selfless, mm-hmm. and. And just wants to have fun. Right. He had more fun making this movie than anything, I think. He really, really loved being out there working with Michael, two people that you would never think would right. get, get along like they did. Somehow it makes it work. When he gets a chance to say bitchin' or you know, <laughs> dude or whatever it is, he, gets, he loves it. You know, any chance he can. It's probably like when uh, Sean Connery, remember like in Fighting Forrester, he's like, you're the man now, dog. Like those guys are just <laughs> yeah. happy to do something out yeah. of the comfort zone. You mentioned misconduct. I saw it, yeah. not only for you, but I love Pacino's. I think Pacino's. Yeah. And yeah. you've got that great climactic scene. For those who haven't seen it, check out Misconduct. Josh uh, plays this guy who's caught up in a web of intrigue and suspense. Yeah. And innocent man gone wrong. And then Pacino, I don't want to reveal everything, but you have a great scene with Pacino at the end. Yeah. What was it like acting with him? Well, that was the very first scene of the movie, which is never easy. I mean, first of all, I had just finished Spaceman. Right. Literally finished the day before, flew overnight to New Orleans to start shooting Misconduct mm-hmm. with Al Pacino and Anthony Hopkins, two people <laughs> that I was absolutely terrified of. Right. Uh, and so we fly to we fly to New Orleans, and we have to rehearse. I'm going to rehearse with Aunt, uh, with Pacino because we start shooting like a day later. Mm-hmm. And typically in a rehearsal, you'll be in this little room where it's just the two of you. No, they had this whole theater, this this famous old theater in New Orleans, mm-hmm. lit as if there's a, a show about to go on. A table in the middle with a spotlight. I walk in there like, oh, really? As if this isn't intimidating enough. I got to now rehearse in front of all of you with Pacino for the first time. Right. But he, you know, he is another one who's just the nicest dude you could imagine. Right. He's Scarface. He is, you know, the he, godfather. He's the godfather, and he is just the sweetest guy you could imagine. Does he offer like any advice to get between takes, or does he kind of just leave you alone? Like I'll do my thing and your thing, and you have a director. Obviously. No, he's he's really collaborative. Both of them were really collaborative, and were you know. And I would ask questions because I, I like to learn from guys like that. Right. And, you know, just really generous dudes and, and really thoughtful, really, really care about the work. You know, Pacino is just – he is he is neurotic when it comes to the work. He wants everything to be perfect. And that's – and you can see where his greatness comes from is because he he, the, he and Hopkins have completely different mm-hmm. styles. Hopkins sips, sticks to the script. Mm-hmm. Pacino goes off script. You don't know when you're, li- and you're like, okay, when do I say my line? I don't want him supposed to come in here. <laughs> right. But he just goes off. And it's beautiful, right? And you just have to sort of go with it, and and that's 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 where he's come up with all these these iconic moments in movie history is mostly by just having the balls to just go for it. Yeah, Azaria told us when Hank Azaria was here that scene in Heat where Pacino screams at him. He said, "Michael, man, if he'll do one take, he'll do 50. So yeah. he said by like the sixtieth take, and Hank is annoyed at this point. He told Pacino, "Just go for it." So that's why the take that you see where he goes, "She's got a great." Azuri was legit, like, terrified, like, Jesus, yeah. like, what's going on yeah. here? But you're right, guys like that don't take chances. Yeah, he takes huge risks, and that's a great learning lesson for me. You know, right. it, it is, you, you got to be, you got to be fearless. Right. You, you, you can't be afraid to just, you know, be awful. Right. Because if you're, if you're afraid to be awful, you're, you can never be great. Yeah. You know, and that's and that's what he does. That's really what I learned from him. We're talking with Josh Demel, Transformers, the latest installment in theaters now. I love Spaceman. I called it a baseball big Lebowski because to yeah. me it's the stoner comedy. This guy who's on a journey, of course, I know the whole story of Bill Lee uh, being from Canada, knowing the Expos growing up. And he was an eccentric guy, colorful guy. And I think a story that's been ripe for Hollywood for a while. And I credit you guys for making it. We had Ron Shelton on this podcast last year. And he told us you guys made it for no money. Yeah. You did it for zero salary. Yeah. What was it about the story that you wanted to make this? I think I actually lost money on that movie. I think I ended up <laughs> spending more. My dressing room was the backseat of my pickup. Uh, you know, it, But it was it was one of those that I did for the love of the game. I really did it. I love the script. I love... I love Bill Lee. He's just such a great character. And, you know, it was a challenge for all of us to try to, you know, 
get a movie made on such a small budget in so few days. And it was just all hands on deck. And I'm actually very proud of that movie, not only for what we did it with what we had, but the story I thought really worked. And, you know, thank you for, for the, the kind words about it because uh, it's hard to get little movies like that off the ground. Yeah, that was my first blurb, actually. I think I was on the poster on the yeah, Space Man. Yeah. So hey, you are, you are our, <laughs> our, 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 our biggest fan, and we appreciate you. Oh, of course, man. Uh, hopefully people will check out Space Man. The other thing is, you know, with your work, I think you've kind of dovetailed between, like I said, doing these big budget movies like Transformers mm-hmm. and then doing these smaller mm-hmm. projects. How do you finesse that? Is that the whole rule of one for them, one for me? Yeah, you, you definitely want to try to do, you know – you know, stuff for commercial and stuff for your own sort of creative. Right. And, you know, you got to be careful because you don't want – one thing that I'm learning now, I'm, I'm starting to – I direct my first movie this summer starting in August. Nice. And so we will be – you learn quickly how they, how they sort of gauge the value of certain actors. Mm-hmm. And you'll be like, well, he did this movie and that movie. It didn't do anything. I was like, well – you don't always do movies for the big box office. You do them because you want to do because you're an actor and you want to do something that gives you a chance to spread your wings. Mm-hmm. And I found out the hard way that you know sometimes that isn't working your favor. Even though I feel like I'm a better actor for it, mm-hmm. it does. Every it's all about the bottom line. Right. And if the movies perform really well, it gives you value and it gives you, you know, uh, it, it makes you more castable. Mm-hmm. I have no regrets about doing little movies like that. I really love it. I feel like it's. It's given me a chance to, to, to do things that I got into this business to do in the first place, was to try as many different things, tell as many different stories as I can. Spaceman is a great example of that. It was just a, a, an opportunity to play a really outrageous character. The movie that you're directing, is that the science fiction project that no. Ben Lyons told us about? No. So the movie I'm, we're starting is called Buddy Games. Mm-hmm. It's based on this thing that my buddies and I do every year for the last 20 years where we get together for a weekend of straight-up competition from – Paintball to go kart racing to ping pong to golf to wiffle ball. You'd fit in great around here, by the way. It is is amazing. You can come. You're more than welcome. (laughs) Buddy Games 2017. But, you know, so so we we had this idea. It's taken us a couple years to sort of flesh out the story, but we took it over to WWE uh, and they loved it. The first people we took it to, they loved it. Uh, We've got, you know, Dak Shepard, Nick Swartzen. Uh, Olivia Munn, you know, we've got a really good cast coming together, so mm-hmm. it's going to be fun, and, and and it's just a it's just a raunchy dude comedy, but it's also a story that sort of speaks to how important your friendships uh, become, especially as we all get older. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that we all sort of appreciate the guys we grew up with that much more, you know, and, and that's really what it's about, is about one of the guys, one of the, the, the way the story happens, I don't want to, I don't know if I should... No, go he ahead. ends up he, – he, he, we start three years earlier, and, and one of the guys gets shot in the testicles with a paintball gun, being obnoxious and drunk, and, and, and the, one of the guys <clears throat> is sick of him. Right. So he shoots him thinking he's going to hit him in the, in, the, in the leg or in the butt, mm-hmm. and he ends up hitting him in the balls. And he ends up losing both of his balls. Oh. And so he cut, story took he, a cut, he cut to three years later, <laughs> and this guy's in a rehab sort of psychiatric clinic. And his mother goes to the leader of the group and says, I need you to help my son. You need to get the boys back together because they've all kind of drifted since that moment. So it's a story about, you know, you know, no man left behind. It's like they they all go back and then it's a, you know, sort of a reunion of these guys and these games and, you know, craziness ensues from there. I'm going to bring a cup, but I can't wait to see it. Yeah, you should bring a nut cup. For sure. Uh, for those who don't know, you're married to Fergie, and yeah. she's done some acting. I thought she was great in the Robert Rodriguez movie, Planet yeah. Terror, which is under the uh, the Tarantino appeal because yeah. he had a death proof. Does she want to do more acting? Does she get offers? You're busy with the family. How does that work? Well, she did a she did a movie uh, with Rob Marshall not too long ago, or a few years ago now, called Nine. Right, Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah, which she she was amazing. She's great in that. Yeah, because she could girl, sing. Yeah. She really is. She's just she's born to do this, and she's just. Uh, uh, you know, she could do more, I guess, if she wanted to, but she's so focused on her music right now. Right. Uh, she's got an album coming out very, very shortly. I can't say when. <laughs> I get in trouble every time I talk too much about it. But it's uh, it's amazing. You know, it's the best stuff she's ever done, and it, I think people are going to be really, really uh, moved by it. 
Yeah, it's tough. I imagine for her, like, MILF Money is a great track. Yeah. And she's got, you know, the cred to be able to get all those other artists in the video with her or yeah. on the songs. But it's like, as an artist, you've always got to reinvent yourself. I know that's the same with acting in some ways. But with mm-hmm. music, I think it's even more of a challenge, right? Because it's like you got to almost adapt to the time. Yeah, yeah. And there is a lot of the stuff like MILF, but there's also stuff that's really uh, just powerful. I mean, there's some songs that are just, like, literally bring tears to your eyes. Right. Uh I, I wish I could you? say. I think, I think maybe too many of them. I mean, there's some, there's some, there's some songs in there that people are going to be like, "Whoa, what is this relationship really about?" So, <laughs> but it's, but you know, I don't care. You know, she can write about whatever she wants as long as it's, you know, as long as it's true to her, right? You no, know? and it's, it's, it's powerful. I'm telling you. While we get to the vulnerable aspect of Josh DeMel, when yeah. Ben Lyons sent me Junk of Tears, he said, "You're going to particularly <laughs> love." I'm absolutely <laughs> shameless. And then was it, your, was it your idea to, to drop your pants and pleasure yourself uh, in the final scene? It was written into this. It was written in, but uh, I think I probably took it to the to a level nobody expected just because I do stuff like that and then regret it later. And I was like, we're not actually going to use that, right? We're not, that was just, I was just kidding around for you guys. And sure enough, they, they put it in. But, you know, All whatever. guys do this. It's, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only We all do it. Oh, I hope I hope at least one person yeah, has this. Of hit. course, Ben Lyons would get me to do that. <laughs> you know, mystery. And like he, he, he just seems so innocent, right? He is a shark, fresh-faced Ben Lyons. Yeah, you're a huge the, sports the baby fan. Says, baby face assassin, right? Is what he is exactly. So he gets people. Um, you're a huge sports fan. Minnesota Twins going way back. I have no affiliation with the Minnesota Twins, but I want to ask you about one of my favorite baseball moments. And that's the pocket home run in oh, yeah. Game Six, ninety-one World Series. I just when I try to tell people who are not sports fans, I said you have to watch this moment. And maybe it's because mm-hmm. I was thirteen and mm-hmm. it was last to first, and Puckett was this dynamo of a player, five-eight yeah. big bowling ball, yeah. had struggled the whole series, made a great catch, then hits that home run. Jack yeah. Buck's call. We'll see you tomorrow night. Where yeah. were you? Are you as impacted by me as that player? Oh, I'll never forget that. It was it was just huge because you know where I'm from, everybody's a Twins fan, and and. To see them so clutch, you know, that was the thing that was just so amazing about that. It was reminiscent of, like, Kirk Gibson and his home run. It was, like, that kind of a mm-hmm. moment in sports history. And and for Puckett and, uh, you know, Dan Glavin, right? <laughs> Dan Gladden, yeah, yeah. Dan Gladden, Gladden. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and Ken Herbeck, all those guys were just – it was just a team that was destined for greatness, I guess, you know, that nobody really expected it. They sort of weren't the team that people expected to win. Right. But they did it, and it's just one of those moments that, uh, you know, hopefully they can do it again this year with two and a half games out. Battling right now the Indians. Yeah. Sano's an all-star. Uh, Irvin Santana's been great. Jose yeah. Barrios. So, yeah, Maldon's you know, got them going. You know, they're, uh, they're a great they're, – they're a team that really develops players really well, but they can never really hold on to them. Right. You know, and that's what's frustrating is that they just – they don't have the budget that the New York Yankees have. Mm-hmm. And so that they can't hold on to some of these great players. But once in a while, if you can catch lightning in a bottle, they can – you know, hit at the right time. They're always kind of in there. Mm-hmm. They're one of those teams that's, that's, that's on the cusp. And so, you know, we're hoping this year is one of those years. I have a buddy who's a huge Minnesota Vikings fan. I don't know if you're as tortured as he is, but he is. He just gets so frustrated because, like, you look at the years of talent. The year they went 15-1, and one, you yeah. know, Randy Moss, Culpepper, et cetera. Oh. And you were at the game, the outdoor game against the Packers. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I was at the game. I was also at the game two years ago when when – they were up the whole game Blair against Walsh. the Seahawks, and Walsh missed that oh. 24-yard field goal. Oh, oh, it was crushing. Well, I thought we won. I was jumping up and down. Yeah. My buddy's like, hey, hey no, they, he missed it. I was like, no. He just don't. And then I see all the Seahawks running around the field. I was like, no, that didn't happen. If you could have heard the shuffling of snow boots walking out of that stadium, <laughs> it was silent. All you could hear were snow boots, just heads down and snow boots shuffling oh. through there. And, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's tough to be a Vikes fan, but, again, they're one of those teams that that they're always right there on the cusp, and we're just waiting for them to bust through. And I, I, I believe in Zimmer. I think that Zimmer is one of those coaches that has the ability to raise the belief in a group of men. Mm-hmm. You know, I really do. He's one of those guys. They they play for him. He, you know, if they can, if if Sam can make a few more plays, he played really well last year. We just need him to make a few more sort of clutch plays that. You know, gets them over. They lost too many games in, in you know in the last few seconds last year. Right. So you'd yeah. rather have Bradford than Teddy Bridgewater. I mean, Teddy's still well. I mean, I, I, Teddy was was the guy, but we'll. See, I don't know if he can if he can get back to where he was. It's just such a tragic injury. I don't even know what to make of that. Yeah. 
but you know, Sam was I was I was pleased with the way Sam played. I'd love to see Teddy. I hate to see anybody go out like that. You mm-hmm. know, he was just getting his 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 sea legs under him. He was he was starting to play really well, and then that happens, and it's just it's tough to watch. Last one for you. My wife Eamon's a huge fan, not only celebrity crush, but she also loved Las Vegas. Your show with James mm-hmm. Con. You got a story for her about Jimmy Con or that show in particular? Oh God, Jimmy Con. He had just so many. He's such a such a great character. Still a friend of mine. You know, he's he's. Uh, I'm just trying to think about what I can share on the radio. It's a podcast. You know? it's fine. Go ahead, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we've already talked chunk of tears. <laughs> what? Uh, he, uh, you know, he, he's like, you know, he's like. I just remember I was telling him about I was telling I was telling him that I was about to go on my first date with Fergie. He's like, "Oh man, she's hot. She's real hot." Here, let me give you a little piece of advice. Go work one out before the date. <laughs> you can make it out what you want. I was like, "What? What was that? You want me to do what?" <laughs> this is that's your that's your like advice. <laughs> like, this, this no, is thanks. Gonna... <laughs> no thanks. No thanks. <laughs> Sorry, sorry back there. The producers are all cringing. (laughs) No, they love it. We're keeping it for sure. All right. Josh DeBell, check out Spaceman. Check out Misconduct. Go watch Transformers. He's awesome. Thanks, man. Actor Showcase. I mentioned on Netflix I was just watching a special called Too Young to Die. One of those episodes is about one of my top five favorite actors of all time, Philip Seymour Hoffman. This feels cruel to try to limit all of his excellence to just five films, so apologies to... His empathetic caregiver in Magnolia, his heartbroken widower in Love, Liza, his hilarious and profane sidekick who steals the movie from Tom Hanks in Charlie Wilson's War, and his enigmatic religious cult leader in The Master. Those did not make the list. Number five is Boogie Nights. He plays Scotty. It announced his arrival as a lonely boom operator, a vanity-free performance, wearing some midriff-bearing mesh shirts, he is this gay man in love with Mark Wahlberg, and it is a tragic comic performance. At times, you are laughing at him and laughing at how pathetic and hapless Scotty is, and then you feel so sorry for him after he hits on Wahlberg and starts calling himself an idiot in the car. It really showed the fact this guy was going to take chances with his movies and began the relationship with Paul Thomas Anderson. Number five is Boogie Nights. Number four is happiness. This is an acquired taste from director Todd Solance, but I think about what his mother said about him. Phil gives voice to the voiceless. He plays a chronic masturbator who makes dirty phone calls to women that he finds in the phone book. Uh, what are you wearing? Uh, you're wearing jeans? Are they tight? Like, this is one of those movies that you go, how in the world could you not be typecast after seeing this film? Every time you'd see Philip Seymour Hoffman, you think of that guy. And in fact, uh, Dylan Baker plays a pedophile in the movie, and I could never look at him the same way. Could never look at William Sadler the same way after I watched the movie Kinsey. His character says he's had sex with 37 different types of species. So it's amazing that Seymour Hoffman was able to give this performance, which felt so true, and yet was not typecast after it. Number three is Owning Mahoney. I've mentioned a couple of supporting performances. How about his lead work? A character mired in the throes of gambling addiction based on the true story of a Canadian banker. His single-minded focus. You see movies about addiction. Let's say Nicolas Cage leaving Las Vegas. Great film, great movie. He's always so happy when he's drunk. He's enjoying life. Seymour Hoffman shows in this movie a lot of addicts have no joy in their addiction. They are just single-minded. They do what they have to do, but there is no enjoyment. They are well aware of the circumstances, yet are powerless to stop what has this gripping hold over them. Many drivers, surprisingly good supporting performance as well. Number two is Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Sidney Lumet, the great filmmaker, gave us one last blast of an excellent film, a volcanic performance from Philip Seymour Hoffman with a heist gone wrong. It's a family melodrama. But there's a scene of him crying, which is how actors should cry, but they never actually do cry. Again, goes back to the authenticity of Seymour Hoffman. And the scene where he confronts his brother, Ethan Hawke, because he knows that he's sleeping with his wife, Marissa Tomei. The way he says, you know I know, it's heartbreaking the way you see a, a, a brother confronting his other brother. He's battling his own heroin addiction, but he's clear-eyed enough to know that he's been betrayed by his brother and realizes this is going to be the end. And number one is doubt. Is he a deeply sympathetic man of the cloth, or is he an unrepentant pederast who uses the church to hide his sins? That is the greatness of Philip Seymour Hoffman, that he can take a role like doubt, and you're never sure which side this character is on. How about an acting showcase? This is an actor's showcase. How about the scenes with him and Meryl Streep going toe-to-toe, two of the best ever, and neither of them lets down their guard? Doubt, my number one Philip Seymour Hoffman film, Capote, which won him an Oscar, does not make my top five. 
Really good movie. Only ever seen it once. For one of my favorite actors, it's not a movie I feel like revisiting. I thought his performance was incredible, the way he got the voice. Uh, you know, he is about 5'9", but Capote was was tiny. The fact that he kind of shrunk himself and fit into that role. But it's, it's not a particularly warm film. I don't have any reason to watch it again. But Capote obviously won him an Oscar, and he's great in that as well. Yeah, that's the one glaring one you, you missed. Um, he's great in supporting roles, so... Yeah. It's. I understand you leaving them out, and you mentioned Charlie Wilson's War, and, and on the last podcast, you mentioned The Ides of March, where he was also right. fantastic. I uh, a, a comedy. He was in Along Came Paul. Yeah, and Stiller. It needs, it needs to be mentioned. <laughs> I don't know if it would make the top five, but if we're talking Philip Seymour Hoffman, you got to mention it. And I also enjoyed Pirate Radio. Oh yeah, it was almost like a modern day Good Morning Vietnam, almost. You know, guys, right. ham radio, middle of the ocean. I thought he was great in that, but yeah, your list is great. Yeah, fun movie and a good cast in Pirate Radio, and you're right. When he passed, the two movies everybody kept mentioning were Along Came Polly, which he's funny in. I mean, the fact where he's like, I sharded. And uh, everybody mentioned Almost Famous. Which... Dude, we got to go. <laughs> <laughs> Almost Famous, I, I just really like the scene where he tells his, uh, the kid about being uncool. We're always going to be uncool. That seems really good, but I don't think it's one of his best films. But there's the five of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Rest in peace. Actors in three words. All right, Dan, what do we got here? All right, let's start with Chris Evans. So Chris Evans, the first one is going to be Pratt, because people apparently often confuse him with Chris Pratt. <laughs> they always mess those guys up, which is kind of sad. Uh, number two, we could go Spider-Man. I'll go Spider-Man. And number three, I'll be hulking. Wait, don't you mean Superman? Superman, excuse me. What did I say? Spider-Man. Spider-Man. I can't yeah, wait Superman. Spider-Man. Superman. And uh, number three is hulking. Hulking is my adjective for Chris Evans. All right, have you ever seen the movie Not Another Teen Movie? I haven't seen it. Not surprised. It was uh, <laughs> one of my favorite comedies, but we'll just move right along. Francis McDormand. Francis McDormand, I think, uh, first one obviously has got to be Marge, because I think of Marge Gunderson. Uh, number two is Cone, because she's married to Joel Cone. And, hmm. I, I want to just go Betcha, because I think of Fargo. Ah, you betcha. We're kind of cheating here. We got two of the two of the same movie, but Marge, you betcha, and Cone. Sounds like we got three from the same movie, I guess, right. in theory. Uh, Paul Rudd. Buck. He's one of the best friends of Joe Buck, which is stunning to me. Every time I think of Paul Rudd, like I just imagine him and Joe Buck hanging out in college together. Um, I think he's really funny. That's number two. And three, I'm going to go with Scenery, because I think he... He steals the scenery sometimes. People don't realize that Paul Rudd, you look at all these big comedies, you know, Vince Vaughn, these major names. Like, Paul Rudd's actually really sneaky funny. Let's go sneaky. Buck, funny, and sneaky. Okay, Marissa Tomei. Marissa Tomei, one, number one is unjust, because it was very unjust that she won an Oscar for My Cousin Vinny, but it was also unjust how she was crucified. Everyone always brings it up as the worst Oscar win of all time, because I think she is actually a really good actress. Um... I think of uh, Late Bloomer is another one I'm going to use because after she won that Oscar, there's a bunch of bad comedy she was in. But then she was really good later films, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead and The Wrestler. And three will go with Italian. All right. And finally, you said it's out of left field, but it's, I guess, right from the pitcher's mound because you picked this one. Hume Cronin. And let's first start by you explaining who he is. So Mark Simon. Excuse me. Nobody loves this more than Mark Simon. So he wanted to get him in there. Um I don't know how many people know who Hume Cronin is, but number one is Tandy, married to Jessica Tandy. I think you'll know her driving Miss Daisy. Another one is Octogenarian. I don't know his exact age, but I'm going to say he was probably in his 80s. And we'll when just, he died? Right. And we'll, we'll just go with Geezer because I don't know anything else we could say for him. All right. That's it. Hume Cronin. He was a Canadian-American actor of stage and screen, enjoyed a long career, often appearing professionally alongside Jessica Tandy, his wife of over 50 years. This is one of the most bizarre three words ever. Hume Cronin. Rest in peace. A Scorsese story. So I'm asking for help here, dear avid listeners of Cinephile. The rare hole in my Scorsese resume, you go through his entire list of movies, you go to IMDb, you go to RottenTomatoes.com, and the one I can't find anywhere, even though I used to live in a film literate place like Toronto, even though I live here in Connecticut, you'd think I'd have access in the world of online, but I can't find it anywhere. So somebody tell me how I can find American Boy. It's a documentary he did about Stephen Prince. And it came out in 1978. Stephen Prince is in Taxi Driver. He's the guy who sells all the guns to Travis Bickle. And Marty ended up making a documentary about him. And he's got a fascinating backstory because he's been involved in crime as well and 
drug dealing and all the rest of it. And I've always wanted to see it. I can't find it anywhere. I go to these obscure film stores, and I'm like, hey, can you, do you have American Boy? They're like, what? I'm like, the Scorsese documentary. like, no, it's out of print. Can't find it. So if seriously, I just wanted to use this venue as help. Tell me, tell me, where is a streaming service? You can't find this thing on Netflix. American Boy documentary by Scorsese. If I see that, then I'm pretty sure I've seen every single thing the guy's ever made. I've seen his student films. All right, for God's sakes. The Big Shave. It's not just you, Murray. I had to suffer through vinyl, which was not a good show. But I've seen the best and the worst of Marty, yet I can't find American Boy. Somebody help me out. Tell me where I can find that documentary. Thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. We'll be back in the middle of July. Got vacation coming up. Then I'll be at the All-Star Game in Miami. But then we'll be back with more. Cannot wait for the new Spider-Man, Michael Keaton, playing the villain. Uh, hopefully you want to see the movie called The Big Six. Sophia Coppola's got a movie called The Beguiled, which uh, got positive reviews at the Cannes Film Festival. So look forward to all of that. We'll see you next time at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Ferk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.